You are listening to a special episode of the Bondzilla Podcast. This week, we take a deep dive into everything James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another Bond Deep Dive episode uh, where we take a, a look at uh, everything James Bond and dive a little bit under the surface and, and kind of, you know, dig up and and dive deep and, and do a lot with that Bond uh, stuff. <laughs> nice. I love it. This week's Deep Dive, um, or it's this be a little month... different and a little unique, I think, uh, uh, in terms well, of... Well, I think the biggest thing is, like, this will be a good companion piece to our previous yes, and it, Bond this is episode. Very, we, we talked about it, we teased it within uh, the Chitty Chitty bang bang episode but if you haven't listened to that we highly recommend it um it's a, a really good uh take into the life of ian fleming and a, a frank discussion on a, a very enjoyable movie mm-hmm. um but, but the, if you have not yeah. checked it out but uh, we are basically connecting it and whereas with that episode we talked a lot about the life of ian fleming uh we're gonna start diving a little bit deeper into bond's roots as a book character mm-hmm. and the the bond books uh kind of what they're all about and kind of talking about the the relationship between the books and the films yeah um because that is obviously the biggest uh unique aspect of your franchise is that it began uh yeah as a book series it's, it's a series of adaptations and it has the coveted source material. Uh, that everybody seems to really want these days. You know, you need your source material so you can say it's based on something. Um, yeah, I think, and then, so what we're going to talk, we're going to talk about those origins as a book series, maybe dive a little bit, uh, get some clarity on the actual source material itself and what those books actually were like. And I think uh, one of the bigger things is that I think it's going to bring up this uh, discussion of, you know, the transferring from the uh, white page to the silver screen. Mm. So let's yeah. let's get started. So what what how do we how what how we dive in deep into this first? I think it would be smart to just give a little bit of an overview uh, of kind of the Bond books, right? Uh, you know, kind of talk about uh, how you know what that character and what those what that series of books is like, and kind of just kind of you know start with with that, so we can actually do have some comparison to to the right. the the films themselves, and to kind of see where um, yeah, Bond came from. And without getting too much into it, because we have an entire episode in which we did get into this, I, I think just as a refresher kit for maybe uh, those who are just tuning into this episode or for whatever reason, or just need a fresh reminder, is the man, Ian Fleming Ian himself, Fleming, yes. without getting too much into his history, some of the highlights, uh, ladies' man, wanted, uh, you know, uh, was very much a, the, of the bachelor lifestyle, mm-hmm. Um also had a creative mind in in terms of had lots of outlandish ideas during his time in British intelligence. Yes, and, uh, and, and but also very successful within British intelligence as well. Very noted for his, uh, despite his outlandish ideas, he had a lot of success. Oh yeah, I, I should say outlandish and not in like a crackpot way. But he's just like he's he he. Definitely, Bought outside the box. Yeah, he definitely has a sense of the theatrics and everything, and uh, which led I think into his writing career, and then. Um, 
the Bond uh, itself came out of Ian Fleming wanting to make the greatest spy story the spy ever told. novel to end all spy novels. Yeah. And uh, and then that's what brings us to the James Bond uh, novels. I was going to say novelizations, but mm-hmm. they're the novels first. Yes. So the movies are more like movieizations yes. of yes, the b- novels. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so yeah, so let's uh, let's let's get into this. So first Bond book is Casino Royale. Casino Royale that is in 1953. So just as an overview, uh, between 1953 and 1966, there are 14 Bond books mm-hmm. re- released. I said 13 in the last episode. Um, That's but, a good trivia question, by yeah. the way. It's like, 14. Yeah, it was just because I think it's like one of those things where you probably I could see somebody knowing that, but yeah. it'd also be like how many of the Bond books. Are there? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um. So we go. Uh. We have twelve full Bond novels and two short story collections. Uh. But we begin in 1953 with uh, Casino Royale. So basically, I was just gonna. What I wanted to do with the at least with the book stuff, just to start with, is basically go over the books briefly in order. Just talk about like a little bit of their plot machinations, how they kind of differ from the books, and sort of the major elements of the Bond book continuity that defines that character. Mm-hmm. I think that would yeah. be very interesting. Uh, to go so uh, we start with Casino Royale in uh, 1953 uh, I've noted that in the episode itself the 2006 uh, Casino Royale episode that the book um, Casino Royale is actually very similar to what we saw in the 2006 Casino Royale uh, the movie does add a lot to the beginning for the establishment most of the book just does take place at Casino Royale but it basically features all the same stuff it introduces Bond's main allies of M you know Money Penny and Felix Leiter are all introduced in that book you know it's all about a poker game though in the book it's obviously Baccarat because that was the hot game at the time 2006 the hottest thing was the Texas Hold'em mm-hmm. um, but most importantly um it is uh the Vesperlind character that truly defines kind of what the emotional uh, side of the Bond books would be in that in very similar sense of the movie, um, even though in the movie they gave her more of a motivation for it in the book, she's more straight up a, a double agent mm-hmm. uh, and Bond falls and falls for her. Vesper falls for him and commits suicide as uh, basically punishment for herself mm-hmm. to, to the, uh, uh, you know, for what she did and, you know, how she felt bad. And that that is something that Bond carries uh, throughout his entire book career. Is um, In fact, within the Bond books, it's established that he makes a yearly pilgrimage to Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, famously, within that first book, one of the most famous aspects of the first book is he creates the dry martini uh, drink, and he says he'll come up with a name for it when he has a when he has a thought on it and he mm-hmm. eventually names it the Vesper oh, okay. um, Got it. after that. And so the, he would order the Vesper uh, throughout those books. But uh, the, 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 the kind of the, the spirit of Vesper would continue on uh, through um, the, the rest of his uh, Fleming's Bond continuity and mm-hmm. even into the Bond continuation novels that would come later down the line. Uh, then we our next one we get right into that next year 1954 we get into Live and Let Die which is the second book mm. uh, which is a very interesting one and and it's really interesting because the beginnings of it are very much like the beginnings of kind of just a, a series of of books where it's just like the the first ones like they do have continuity that they share between each other but they're very much like a series of of, of individual adventures, adventures in, in yeah and one of the things I should mention too 
is that the way that Fleming presents these books is that he's presenting M as kind of like, oh, James Bond has relayed these stories to me, and I am putting it out to you. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, which I do want to uh, read. Something. So it's really like, oh, we're chronicling the yeah, adventures, these of adventures of James, James Bond. Bond. Now, did, did the Casino Royale book did that also follow? Like, oh, he's like a fresh agent. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. So that book is very much like he's fresh off his. Uh, getting his double O number mm-hmm. for he killed two people. Uh, one of which is implied to be still was part of like the world war two stuff or, or stuff that kind of related to the ending of world war two. See, that's really interesting was that the, it did start out as like, you know, the origin story essentially yeah. of bond right. when, as when the film started, it was just more of like, Oh, they just drop you right into it. Right. And it's like, you know, the, the, the movies definitely like put it into like, well, this is kind of, you know, it's just like whatever movie it is, it's just, okay, it's this year, you know, or it's just like whatever's going on. Whereas mm-hmm. the Bond books are more so like based on like Bond was a commander in the Royal Navy during World War II mm-hmm. and post-World War II, he he basically requests uh, a job within Secret Service and that like his test is to kill these two people for like post-war machinations and then he gets his 007 number. Right. A lot of more stuff about Bond, you know, Fleming in his first books very much like did not, share much of the background of bond maybe kind of basically saying he's a you know just a new fresh double agent you know royal commander in the navy more than that and then as the books go on you get a lot of the stuff that we end up actually getting in stuff like skyfall inspector um a lot of that stuff of bond's history does pop into the movies mm. uh, craig movies but we get an 11 let die uh again very much like hey he's now fighting a, a voodoo <laughs> like leader type okay so so fleming was already like like kind of leaning into some of the more mm-hmm. um well i guess that would be a biggest thing like how outlandish did the books oh, it, get it gets outlandish which is one of the reasons i'm going in order because mm-hmm. there are things i was like what like, right like where it goes so but but, like, the, but it does it, follow that era so they add the voodoo stuff yeah, because like, you not, kind of blur that it, line it's not as supernaturally based as it right. is in the movie okay. because that's more that supernatural stuff is more of a guy hamilton thing mm-hmm. that he wanted to do um but it does kind of this is kind of the start of where um you know the kind of continuity comes in because it's already the, it's only the second book and felix leiter is getting eaten by a shark as we saw in uh, license to kill but that comes from the live and let die book and that Felix losing his arm in that book does become a big deal with, you know, kind of a subplot within those books of, like, Felix, like, you know, the CIA is like, you lost an arm, but Felix is like, I still want to be out here and and helping people. Right. But it's very much like, you know, this is kind of like the beginnings of it is just the solid kind of adventure novel, right? It's just kind of like, here's the thing. Here's another adventure of Bond. I'm relating this information to you. Um, And that kind of goes into the next one, which would be Moonraker, uh, which I've noted also is very much a lower key than the movie is because uh, Moonraker is actually based on an actual plans that Fleming knew about for Britain to build a nuclear bomb in World War II uh, that never really came up uh, during the war, but basically it was like a rocket-based nuclear bomb, mm. uh, which is, again, this is kind of where this is, where kind of the oddness of um, kind of how these books are presented because the the bulk Moonraker begins with M asking Bond to come to like a gentleman's club like a like a private club in 
in uh, London to stop Hugo Drax from cheating at bridge. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I'm like, hey, Bond, can you just help me like catch this guy cheating at bridge? Right, right. Being... Yeah, this should be an easy, this would be a day's work for you, Bond. Right, and then and then they eventually, like, and then that kind of starts the thing where it finds out, like, Drax is an ex-Nazi, ex-Nazi who's going to take over, like, Britain's first nuclear bomb and, and blow okay, up. Yeah, when that happens. Uh, all because he was uh, caught cheating at bridge, well, <laughs> uh, but not really that. But that's like, you know, in Galabrand, which would be the basis of Miranda Frost, even though it's a completely different character. Um, but then what's next is diamonds are forever, uh, which also, again, cause in the movie, this, a Blofeld, Blofeld hasn't entered the picture yet, but, uh, it's basically bond, uh, based on Fleming's research of his nonfiction book uh, about diamond smuggling. Um, has Spectre been in the books up until this point? So there's no, no Blofeld, no Spectre no, or any no, of that. No, no. Okay. Remember, that's all stuff that comes from Thunderball and Kevin McClory, yeah. which is where that whole lawsuit comes in. Um, but they basically, you know, he travels to America, meets Tiffany Chase. Um, again, the kind of another general adventure of just diamond smuggling and just kind of Bond being actiony and stuff like that. But the book ends with uh, Tiffany Chase becoming Bond's roommate. <laughs> Uh, and not even like kind of in a lover situation. It's more so like I just you know I'm, I'm kind of getting out of the diamond thing. I need a place to stay. Uh, and Bond's like, yeah, you can just live with me for a while. And uh, Fleming was actually considering making Tiffany a regular character, but by from Rush with Love, she has moved out and, and married an American, so that did not tend to be. Uh, but from Rush with Love was actually a very interesting book because that's our next book. Now we are in 1957, uh, so he's just pumping these books out. Like he's just basically like every year a new Bond book. You know, he goes to Goldeneye in Jamaica, two months, puts out a book, puts out a new Bond adventure, you know, and he's just kind of doing that. But From Rush With Love, actually, what's interesting about this, so From Rush With Love is actually probably, other than Casino Royale 2006, the closest to the movie version. Right. Uh, within the movie version, they replace Smirch with Spectre, and they have to do all their machinations with that. But pretty much a lot of the stuff you see on screen is what in the book. But by this time, Fleming was actually kind of burnt out on Bond. Um, he he, uh, he actually wrote to American author Raymond Chandler that said like that my muse isn't really working anymore and I don't know how much I can do with Bond at this time. So he actually, uh, within the published version of um, uh, From Russia With Love, it is implied uh, there's the end of the fight with Rosa Klebb where she has the shoe with the poison tip. Uh, but in the book, uh, as Bond incapacitates her, Rosa actually nicks Bond with the poisoned tipped uh, knife mm-hmm. and the end of the book basically implies that bond dies in that situation oh okay uh, so basically like it's not like a clear-cut thing it basically ends with him passing out right uh but bond is very much like fleming was like if this is the end of the bond character then you know this is the way he goes out he, right he right di- he dies on the mission so he of- was kind of giving himself like also like a little wiggle room too yeah we get to uh, Dr. No because For Much With Love is actually his most successful book, obviously a book that is loved eventually by uh, John F. Kennedy, but, but For Much With Love is really kind of what people saw like, oh, this is like Fleming's best work so far, one of his most popular works. Uh, so he's like, well, I guess I have no more inspiration now because they're going to keep giving me money to, mm-hmm. to make Bond books. So we get to Dr. No, um, which of course was the first Bond movie and this is where you know we start to kind of get a little bit more like a little bit more into kind of the bigger nature of what those bond movies would be because we have one of our big first kind of major villains in dr no uh whereas what's interesting about fleming is like it, it kind of feels like like 
how sometimes you know those movie series get or just like film franchises where it feels like like the more they go on the bigger they have to get right or like the video games where it's like the you know the next uncharted game has to be completely bigger than the last one because you know you have to keep you know you know getting your audience involved so now it's to the point where you know those first couple you know those first kind of five books were very much like you know they kind of had like villains and kind of ridiculous things but very much like kind of more on a realism scale where now you're getting some kind of the super genius like dr no right getting like crab key and the tank and everything like that so he's starting to really play with his world and starting to play with kind of the fantastical nature of bond as he's kind of getting more into like kind of that that fantasy element of himself where it's like again bond is in theory a reflection of fleming right and, and he's kind of like, like like in the fantasy as in like kind of like a power fantasy type of yeah. thing yeah and actually like i also should mention this is where again the continuity of the books come in because uh, i mentioned this in our live and let die episode because dr no is actually a partial sequel to events that happen in live and let die and because live and let die happens earlier in the book continuity there's more kind of characters that come back from that because they both play, take place around Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, Goldfinger, um, which uh, infamously has a really stupid plan in it and also infamously has uh, Pussy Galore as a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, now he's getting Goldfinger, this big smuggler who wants to steal all the gold out of Fort Knox, and Bonds you know, has to kind of stop him from there, um, which, again, is... Uh, parody in the movie when it's like you can't steal all the gold out of Fort Knox and uh, the movie was trying to be a little bit more down to earth in that right. in that sense um, so then we get the first short story collection which is For Your Eyes Only uh, which features View to a Kill For Your Eyes Only and Quantum of Solace now what did you what do you mean that entailed of like the short stories so uh, as Fleming was doing these novels um, he would get offers from various places to produce short stories based on his Bond work. Uh, so, of course, Playboy was a big, uh, a, a big fan of Fleming's work and would feature, you know, when people read the Playboy for the articles, one of the articles would be a new Bond short story by Ian Fleming. Uh, also, he would do it for the Sunday Times newspaper in the UK. Those were two major works. So basically, mm-hmm. off the side... People just ask him, hey, can you do like a little Bond short story for us? Got it. And he would just kind of pop it up and, and do it. Uh, this is where characters uh, such as uh, Oberhauser, uh, Hans Oberhauser was introduced okay. in, in these types of stories. You also had, um, of course, um, the For Your Eyes Only being, um, you know, the um, you know bond, the avenging of the deaths of uh, the... Uh, I'm thinking of the actress's name. It's Carol Bouquet with the mm. Havelock. The Havelocks. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, and stuff like that. Um, we also have um, some books. Them some books uh, that never have uh, had Bond adaptations. Uh, technically speaking, like Risico, which is a uh, drug smuggling book about the Russians, and uh, the Hildebrand Rarity, where a uh, Bond helps uh, find a rare fish for an obnoxious millionaire. What do you mean he helps find a fish? Well, the Hildebrand rarity is a is a rare fish, so, right? And so basically, like, whoa, 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 whoa! You're burying the lead on that one. Wait, so he, there's a one. There's basically the Life Aquatic with James Bond, where he goes like tries to find a fish. Yeah. Like, well, how does that one work? No, no, no. I need to know more about that one. I think that's one of the, I, I think I'll have to look more into it. But it's like all these other ones are like, how does that fit into his profession as like? Uh, how does how does Fleming go from well I guess like this is kind of showing that he's trying to do different things yes. with it so like just doing like spy stories isn't quite as satisfying mm-hmm. for him yeah and this is also the point 
within the Bond book continuity where Bond is starting to get disillusioned with MI6 and M. Right. Uh, because particularly like, you know, in Free Your Eyes Only the book, um, Bond is tasked with, you know, avenging the Havelocks as a personal favor to M. Uh, and, and like stuff like the Hildebrand rarity is more so like M just kind of keeping his, um, you know, his contacts in line. So he's like, he's like, hey, help this millionaire type of dude and mm. find his rare fish and stuff like that. When he when he's also making these books, like how are they? How are they identify? Like how are they? I'm trying to think of the way because one of the things that's always interesting about the movies is that you just know it's a James Bond movie, but it's an interesting franchise in which the movies aren't called James Bond, yeah, uh, and Skyfall or something like that, or James Bond in this or 007 in this. So, like, was it the same? I'm always fascinated. It, you know, it's very similar to the Jack Reacher thing, yeah, about how you have like all those different like stories and movies, mm-hmm. but then you're like, oh, those are all Jack Reacher movies. It's just it's fascinating to see a franchise, be it a book or a movie franchise, not to have a unifying label on it. It's basically like, you know, Ian Fleming was known as the Bond author. Yeah. So would it say so, Ian Fleming's So like this? this would be like the original cover of like From Russia With Love. So okay. So it basically says like Fleming. Oh, so you would just have to see the author's yeah, name. basically. Yeah. yeah. Because even like, because like Tom Clancy... But even that kind of became like a title almost. Yeah. Like even though like I know it's the author's name on it, but like Tom Clancy's this became almost synonymous with, with just like a title. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, I guess this was you know. You yeah. Just so have basically, to know. like you know, he's kind of starting to do different things, especially within the short stories. But then we get to the Spectre trilogy, which is things where things really go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So we start with Thunderball. Uh. You know the infamous. You know, thing where he, you know, it was basically Kevin McClory's story that he wrote in novel form in a couple weeks. And basically because he liked the idea. Uh, because it's based on the screenplay, Thunderball is very much similar to the book. But you do start to get really get into the disillusionment with uh, kind of stuff going on with MI6 and how they're dealing with these missions. And, and Bond and Felix are basically taking matters into their own hands mm-hmm. within uh, this book. Um so almost the book acts as like a literal yeah. like metaphor for Fleming's own like breaking free of like the confines of yeah. Bond that he had previously yes. created for kind himself. Kind of yes, yeah. Um, and that would only get to, but he takes a little break from the Spectre stuff with the infamous Spy Who Loved Me book, uh, which is um, written in the first person. So Bond's the rest of the Bond adventures were written in the third person, like James Bond did this, James Bond did that. Uh, but uh, Fleming wrote The Spy Who Loved Me as a first person's perspective of the Bond girl, uh, mm. basically dealing with her adventures uh, and eventually like how she eventually met up with Bond within uh, this world. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Fleming hated that book more than anything else. Why um, did he hate it? Uh, he hated it because he felt like he didn't uh, – it was just like too different for him. Yeah. It was just something that he didn't really like. He didn't really feel he captured the main character well. He felt that he didn't you know, he didn't know how to write from a female perspective. It's so Even- funny. I'm not uh, – like, de- like I'm not a writer in the capacity that other people are. Definitely not like a novelist by any stretch of the imagination. But it is funny. Like I, I work on creative works, and I do 100% sympathize with – you work on something, yeah. uh, you can work on something for like an hour or so, and then like you look back on it and you're just like, holy, like what? what is this? Like I can't imagine you write a whole novel and then be like, didn't get it, didn't nail it. Yeah. Like that's so – Well, it's kind of funny so because crazy. Um, 
Not to say that I'm not trying to devalue again, like, that. Within, like, within yeah, the original, obviously, I, we talked about this too. But in the original deal for the movies, uh, the Fleming estate basically said you can only use the title for a Spy Who Loved Me. You can't use any elements of that novel in the movie because, like, Fleming did not like it right, that right. much. Even though it's funny because I was really looking into it because initially, um, you know, it was not well reviewed at the time, but people have relooked at it and mm. found that it's actually like one of Fleming's better depictions of a female character, mostly because he's telling the perspective of it. Right. But that's a little bonus for you about yeah. Spy Who Loved Me. Well, he's also, and real quick, uh, he's also like really, and we talked about this in the Fleming episode, or the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang episode, he pumps these out, Yo, he too. pumps these out, So yeah. I, I guess there's a little bit of that, that it's a little easier for him to write one and then look, look back on it. He's like, yeah, that's not my best one. Uh, I do want to... I, I felt like, you know, we had to at least get one excerpt uh, from one of these Bond Okay, books. all right. I do right. want to read the prologue uh, for The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, this is basically laid on me. Ian Fleming. Uh, so this is from the perspective of Ian Fleming himself. Mm-hmm. And this is all quoted from the book directly. Because, again, it's him relaying the yes. tales of yeah. Bond. I found what follows lying on my desk one morning. As you will see, it appears to be the first-person story of a young woman, evidently beautiful and not unskilled in the arts of love. According to her story, she appears to have been involved both uh, perilously and romantically with the same James Bond whose secret service exploits I myself have written from time to time. With the manuscript, a note was a note saying, uh, signed, Vivian Michael, assuring me that what she had written was purest truth and from the depths of her heart. I was interested in this view of James Bond through uh, the wrong end of the telescope, so to speak, and after obtaining clearance from uh, for certain minor infringements of the Official Secrets Act, I have much pleasure in sponsoring its publication. So it's just kind of like... It is so funny hearing, like, now that I know more of the bigger picture of what Fleming is like, and yeah. to now hear, like, how his voice sounds in yeah. his writing. It's so, like... It, it just it just speaks of him it like speaks of like a very like fun self-importance mm-hmm. like he's like like the fact that he would because here's the thing like Fleming is is interesting is that he is this guy like he wants like the fame and yeah. everything or he wants like the recognition and like the the, gl- the glitz and the glamour so it's so funny to hear that not only is he going to make like the like he's inserted himself into the story twice like not only is he kind of making like a power fantasy of like him like I, you you know he's seeing himself in bond a little yes, bit absolutely. by being the ladies man with like who works in british intelligence and has like the crazy ideas and everything and is can pull off the impossible but also he's writing himself as the only person that bond will tell these stories to. <laughs> yeah that's kind of one i wanted to write that but it's just kind of like how he presents the bond story right, and yeah, how he presents yeah. this one in particular that yeah he's like, like well it's like you know i'm the only man capable of the job and right and it's just like and now I, it's like he's writing this own story but like i thought it would be interesting to like publish you know a a different perspective from the other end of the telescope type of thing <laughs> even though it's still him writing all the stuff i so love it i love it's it so fun uh but then we get back to the main specter storyline so you know, obviously, again with the Thunderball stuff, there's all these questions about who came up with Spectre and who, you know, who right, right, McClory or, or, and so basically, again, that deal is that you know he that McClory owns the film rights to Thunderball and owns his script, but uh, Fleming can still use Spectre and and Bond in his books. So mm. he goes into Honor Majesty's Secret Service, 
and what's interesting about Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a couple things. One is that this is very much an older Bond now. One I, one thing I should mention is that within Fleming's world, I don't I don't know specifically if this is like a real life British thing, but within Fleming's world, uh, there is a mandatory retirement from the, the 007 unit at the age of 45. Mm. Um, and so Bond starts it and is like early, uh, basically early to mid 30s. And at this point, by Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he's approaching his 40s, and so essentially approaching retirement. And basically, he's uh, he's very much like now a little bit more older. Obviously, uh, he's a little bit more jaded, mm-hmm. but also a little bit more openly humorous, mm-hmm. uh, which is stuff that Fleming actually took inspiration from the films for. Mm. Uh, whereas, like Bond, def- definitely had a dry humor within his original kind of run, uh, but Fleming definitely took some of the more overt. Uh, humor within especially Dr. No uh, because that was the you know the first film and that was the film that was you know being written at the time that he was coming up with Our Majesty's Secret Service and so he took a little bit more of kind of that inspiration from that as well as kind of putting more Connery into his bond so mm-hmm. he specifically reveals in this book that uh, Connery or he basically gives up basically the life story that is in Skyfall Inspector that Bond is a son of a Brit- Scottish father and a Swedish mother um who is eventually they're, they're killed in a climbing accident? Eventually, you know, bounces around with uh, you know Hans Oberhauser for a little bit, with you know his aunt for a little bit. Eventually, like finds his way through the army, all that sort of stuff. So this is the the Honor Majesty Secret Service, is basically where like the Bond real origin story of who this guy mm. was, all right, 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 um, and came to be. Um, but basically, at the beginning of that book, he's basically like. I'm done with this. Like he's basically like they've had like M's had me chasing wild goose chases on Spectre for a year. Spectre's done. We defeated them. There's no point in in this thing. And and they're basically sending me all these all these nonsense missions. Um, one thing I should mention too is that by this time, uh, the Living Daylights book or st- short story had been published uh, in Playboy, I believe. And in that story, if you remember the in the movie, he has the whole thing about like if he fires me, I'll thank him for it. And that's right. basically what Bond's mindset was within this timeline in the books. It's just like he had gone on all these adventures. He wasn't really getting the support he needed from M. And M was basically now kind of using the 007 unit for his own personal measures, as we saw in Free Your Eyes Only. Um, and there was like there was kind of Fleming ref- Fleming reflecting on kind of the post-war Britain is kind of where this is all kind of leading to and just kind of like the restlessness and the lack of direction that Fleming felt the country had was very much reflected in how M treated his 007 agents uh, within this book. But he's as he's writing this retirement letter, he's basically said, I'm done with this. I'm going to get out of here. He runs across Tracy, uh, who's about to commit suicide. Uh, also, of course, he meets Tracy and, and gets together with Tracy at Casino Royale, mm-hmm. uh, where he's honoring the uh, death of his lover, Vesper. And uh, Tracy becomes kind of the new Vesper in his life. Just the person he comes in the right time mm-hmm. uh, in his life. Uh, but unfortunately, just as in the movie, uh, she tragically dies at the end. Um, as they take over, you know, they, they finally do find Blofeld. Tracy actually gets a more involved with the action, and then Bond's like, "You're a headstrong woman. I want to marry you." Mm-hmm. And Tracy's like, "Sure." They get married. And, and this dies. is and this is book number. Just to remind uh, me. this is book number. Uh, if we're talking about overall, this is book number uh, 
ten. Okay, so this is fairly late in yes. the in the game. Oh yes, yes, yeah. this is very very late. This is nineteen sixty three. Mm-hmm. So this is when the films are being produced. Right, right, so right yeah. Doctor No had come out. From Russia with Law was in active development, and they were just. It's so fascinating, though, because like when you look at like these big Bond moments that we have seen in the films, that they are portrayed in the novels as being kind of like a more gradual like story being told, and they built like they've. It seems like you know when you get to book number ten. Uh, they've like earned that moment of Bond having this, so it's a l- very impactful. Yeah. Whereas, like, on Her Majesty's Secret Service is like in the first handful of films, right? Well, that was always kind of what they were leading to because it was like the newest book from when they were doing it, and they wanted they wanted that moment desperately of like Bond, you know, losing the love of his life, and then again, the original plan for that was that there was going to be a more direct follow up right. because of changing an actors that never happened. But that does happen within the Bond books. Okay. As we get to, uh, for uh, you only live twice. Mm-hmm. So, after the murder of Tracy, Bond is basically even more of an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, as like he's basically like he's drinking every day. He's let himself go. He's not in shape. He's basically like a haggard old, like basically like a haggard, like you know, s- cynical old man essentially at this point. But M brings him back in. Because, uh, so this is interesting because, again, this is going into the old M and Bond relationship within the books because M brings him back in. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why. I just, I do need to say this. It is funny that because I have to visualize M in this, it's so funny that my mind just goes to Judy Dench. <laughs> Yeah, like I know it's not. I know it's not that in yeah, the in books, the books yeah. but I know it's just it, it's funny because like when you think of M, no matter what capacity, who do, who does your mind go to? Uh, I kind of honestly, it's funny. I or are you able to differentiate? I, the I two? can differentiate, but yeah. I can kind of. I kind of always flip between like the Judy Dench one yeah. and the Robert Brown one, which is the one that like like the later, the later more into Dalton movies have. Mm-hmm. Also because that that Robert Brown is also in like this Disney production I just watched. Right, so right, just, right. He's, he's the one on my mind. No, no, right no. Now. That makes sense. It's just funny that my reference point is always it's Judy Dench. Judy but it's Dench, like she's yeah. she's definitely one of the best ends. Yeah. Like there's no. Sorry, sorry, about. sorry, Ray no, no. Fines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never think of you. Uh, yeah, I think uh, he's fine for what he is. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, Bond is called back by M, and it's like, listen, you need to get your shit together because we need you. Um, we need you to basically make this deal with the Japanese to exchange like information and radio transmissions so that we can finally, you know, get, you know, get this guy. Right. Um, but basically this leads into bond, um, you know, trying to get his life back together to, Mm. to pull off this mission while also finding out about this mysterious Shatterhand, Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, lives in a castle on a hill Mm -hmm. or on a, on a cliff. Which was funny because that was the whole rumored, fake rumored title for Bond 25 for a long yeah, time. Yeah, with Shatterhand, yeah. I didn't realize that was a thing. Along the way, of course, he meets up with uh, Kissy Suzuki, uh, the the female character that we saw in the in the book. Um, so basically, like Bond, the whole book is basically Bond like becoming Bond again. That's the kind of the whole thing, where it's less like right. you know, he. He kind of picks himself up and he finds out that Blofeld may still be alive. The Bond Knight returns. Uh, but where this book ends, will so Bond and Blofeld uh, get into a basically a sword fight. Uh, and Blofeld has been in how many stories? Three. It's a, it's okay. a trilogy of Blofelds. Yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. So Bond eventually kills Blofeld uh, and finally gets the revenge for his wife's mm-hmm. death. But in the process of killing Blofeld, 
Bond gets knocked on the head with a Blofeld's sword. Okay. And gets amnesia. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. And so he wakes up with a Kissy Suzuki, who convinces Bond that he's a Japanese man. What? And not only a Japanese man, that he's her wife. Because she doesn't want him to go back to the Secret Service, he wants she wants she she's his wife. You mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that they're married. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Bond is now living in Japan. Uh, he's lives in Japan for a couple months. Uh, as a as a Japanese fisherman. Right. Um. Well, the the second to last chapter of that book is Bond's obituary. Uh, within uh that M writes right. basically there. Uh, and then at the end of the book, Bond is reading a newspaper where he reads like the name of a Russian city, and it triggers something like in his mind um, that he's like, "This is an important place to me. I need to go." And Kissy's like, "Well, he finally is figuring out that he's you know not really my husband, but you know I'm pregnant, but I don't want to tell him." And then Bond leaves. <laughs> Why? But I guess why have all that extra stuff? Is there any other information on like why Ian Fleming went that off the rails? Like I just like he was basically like just a cliffhanger, basically. Yeah, because that's like classic like soap opera. Yeah, that's very much like pulp opera, like pulp like fiction, yeah. like like soap opera. But it's just funny thing. because it's like again, maybe I haven't read it, so maybe there's like more something that in more of an inkling that something like that was going to happen but it's just kind of crazy that you would just show like because i thought what you were going to say was like that was the cliffhanger is like oh he doesn't remember yeah. like who he is and it's like oh that's a bold way to end this but no it's like one of those like they ended that way he lived out a little bit of his life and then it gets reversed yeah in the last well it's like they don't, but it's also like it's like he still doesn't know right. much about himself he just knows that like this this thing with russia is like important to him somehow. got it got it and that like and then kissy's like i never got to tell him that i was pregnant with his child like and that was like kind of how the book ends that's pretty crazy uh but then we get the Fleming's last uh, solo Bond novel, the fourteenth book. The well, it's it's the thirteenth book because mm-hmm. uh, another short story collection is published oh, after okay, his got death. It, got it. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's the twelfth and final novel of of uh, Fleming's, and then you know the, mm-hmm. the two short story collections, which is the Man with the Golden Gun, mm-hmm. which basically wraps up the cliffhanger. Okay, by, so it is a direct follow up yes. of the. Okay. So well, actually, so it's a year later. It's a year after Bond's reported. Well, that. by follow-up, I mean, like, like yeah. it's coming off of the events of, like, yeah. wait a minute, I remember something. Uh, so, basically, M's, like, in his office, and, like, there's a guy, like, comes in, he's like, sir, like, James Bond's, like, outside. And everybody's like, but he died. Like, we wrote his obituary. He's been missing for, like, a year. So, they go out, and they, like, confirm that it's Bond. And so, Bond, like, they bring him in for the debriefing, but during the debriefing... Bond hears a specific trigger word and tries to kill M. Mm-hmm. And then it's basically revealed that Bond was, uh, when he went to Russia, was brainwashed by the Russians because of his amnesia and then basically was programmed to like be a, a KGB assassin. Right. So basically he is like deprogrammed and he's like back to being Bond. He remembers his life. Uh-huh. But then M's like, well, you did try to kill me. So like. So Ian Fleming really is just like, all right, I'm throwing, I'm going crazy yeah. with these. Yeah. So he's like, M's like, so you have to lose your 007 number. So you're now 7777. That's your new number. Four sevens. And we're going to send you on another impossible mission. You have to kill. Uh, Cuban assassin Scaramanga. And basically, this is just kind of a duel of um, Scaramanga, 
who is a KGB uh, and drug runner. Uh, basically, him and he gets Felix involved uh, to basically help him like get his 007 number back and, and kill Scaramanga. Um, so the thing about the Man with the Golden Gun is actually in Fleming's own eyes wasn't finished. Um, Fleming in his own notes said he wanted to do another pass at it, but died before he, uh, could. And then the publisher's like, well, we, we have this completed book. It's fine. We'll put it out there. Oh, okay. Um, but basically Fleming was basically seemingly leading up to like the official, like, you know, cause within man with the golden gun bond is 42. So he'd be three years away from his mandatory retirement. Oh, the, okay. Got it. Universe. Got so it. it seemed like Fleming was leading to an end of bonds kind of redemption, you know, like the full redemption of killing Blofeld, but now like really kind of coming back to being James Bond and being like kind of that super spy hero that was in those earlier books. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it seemed like Fleming had plans to kind of lead up to kind of a a finale final end Mm -hmm. for the Bond. But it, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like, Oh, like, uh, that he was like in the middle of something like there was a cliffhanger and then it was like so now it's one of those projects that's just unfinished yes or well which one like i'm well, asking so like, basically like the book ends so the book ends like on a conclusion or uh, yeah that's what i mean yeah, the, like, the, yeah. sorry the bond the book does end on a conclusion where he kills scaramanga right mm-hmm. and like stops the kgb and basically like you know gets again his revenge for them like you know right like, yeah brainwashing him but it seemed like there was like you know like another step to that journey, like not necessarily like a direct cliffhanger, but more so like oh yeah, like yeah. he probably would have gone more with it. But it wasn't like it's like oh man, it's one of those tragically unfinished stories. Like, but it was ultimately like the the story itself was concluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after his death, another short story collection is published, which features. Uh, originally it just features two stories because those were two stories uh, that were more, more popular, Octopussy, mm-hmm. uh, where he comes up with an old war hero comrade who's trying to find Nazi gold, uh, which ends up being... Nazi gold? Yeah, uh, which ends up being within the like, uh, Octopussy's father. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then The Living Daylights, which is essentially that beginning of The Living Daylights, is essentially, that's like a, pretty much the word-for-word stuff that Fleming wrote on the page. Uh, and then eventually later editions would um, go into Property of a Lady, which is basically the auction scene in Octopussy where Bond's trying to identify an agent at an auction. And then the my favorite Bond title, 007 in New York, um, <laughs> where Bond, uh, which is basically the ending of Quantum of Solace, uh, where Bond goes to a KG or an MI6 agent, like, "Hey, your your boyfriend's like not all he seems to be." Uh, basically, it's that, right? Um, but that is kind of the Bond kind of continuity of the yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it it really isn't like it's pretty straightforward, actually, in a way, and it, yeah. it it's more so interesting to see how the movies have approached it, mm-hmm. where it is more of like the movies just started with like, "Here's the icon, we're gonna drop you right into it," and it really isn't until maybe the uh, until the Craig films that they try to go back to, back to like, that the, Fleming character, right? Yeah. In the basics of like, you know, we're going to establish it with this film and then build it off of. Yeah. I, I would say that way. like, in terms of just the basics of the character that, that Craig's interpretation, especially within those first two films are probably the closest to the Fleming character that has been on screen. I right. Think. Right. I yeah. do think like there's that elements of Dr. No, but they also the thing about Dr. No is that, I mean, Fleming initially was not sold on Connery because he just had a very different interpretation of mm. what Bond was in his head. 
um, but he enjoyed the, the interpretation of Connery, which was a little bit bigger, a little bit more humorous. But again, he ended up ele- integrating those elements into the books. I do think there's a very distinct style change within within Fleming's work. I think there's like kind of a first half and a second half. Yes. Like that first run of those five that goes to From Rush With Love, I think is very much a lot more kind of that grounded, straightforward reality. And then when he comes back from From Rush With Love because of its popularity – you just see like the stories start to get bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier over time. And so I- that was actually going to be my like kind of a follow-up question was that so when we talk about how crazy do the stories get like in comparison to the movies like so how are we talking because we see that they get kind of crazy in a very like you're right soap opery uh pulpy way where yeah. it's like all right now we're bringing in amnesia yeah, and, and like fake marriages yeah exactly and it's like oh you were brainwashed and there's this thing so it gets crazy in that way definitely mm-hmm. uh but do we like like are because obviously the movies um, take on that persona of being very outlandish with the gadgets and like the set pieces and the adventure. Do the books ever kind of go into that direction a little bit? Not as much. I mean, like the thing is, like those the like the biggest that it gets is kind of the Blofeld trilogy, mm-hmm. which is kind of much more like the Spectre organization and the bigness of Blofeld. But very much like the books initially stick to even like even stuff like Doctor No, where it starts to get a little bit bigger from that perspective like it, it sticks to kind of a more of that tone of like what like from Washer with love is you know where like the movie where it is a little bit more kind of the down-the-earth spy stuff with kind of like an action a big action sequence or mm-hmm. you're there to like some some spy are there work. are there gadgets in the in not the books? particularly actually yeah um, the gadget stuff it, fleming does integrate it into um the uh uh, the later book, the later like uh, Thunderball and and books like that, because again the the films have been out at that point. Um, but actually, uh, the the character, the major Boothride character, which would become Q, mm-hmm. would not get introduced until Doctor No. And mm-hmm. the reason actually that it's introduced is uh, there was a, a gentleman, uh, a real life uh, uh, Boothroyd, Mister Boothroyd. Uh, I can't remember the first name off the top of my head. But Boothroyd basically wrote a letter to Fleming. Basically said, "I think Bond's using the wrong gun. He would use he would, like within his profession and, and the way that he uses his gun, he would most likely use a Walter PPK." Mm-hmm. Um, though the Boothroyd in the letter did say that Bond's right now is using a, a lady's gun, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but he should be using a Walter PPK. Right. So Fleming was basically like, "Okay." So then he created the Q Gadget Man character, which originally just was like the arm, the armory guys. It's like, here's your gun for the mission, Bond, as it was kind of in Doctor No, the movie, which is where the character first appeared. Um, but very much like, okay, well now the character's named Major Boothroyd um, because you know this guy sent me a letter. Uh, but that kind of stuff again kind of relates to that later stuff where that's where kind of a lot more the gadget stuff comes from. Because mm-hmm. again, like even like think about like. The Moonraker plot, the reason that Cubby didn't use it in the movie was because it was very down-to-earth and simple, where it's just like a, an ex-Nazi steals a nuclear bomb and in, gets in a satellite and holds a hostage over London. Right, like It's nothing right. nothing too crazy, where it's like... Yeah, mo- no, it, it is fascinating to hear that, like, the silly nature that he... I mean, because I think people would still consider, like, more of, like, that... Definitely in those last few books would be kind of like, all right, the plot is getting crazy. In terms of like you know all like the reveals and and that that definitely comes with its own baggage of being like super crazy. Um, but it is interesting because you did mention uh, you kind of mentioned how Craig resembles those uh, those uh, Fleming because 
that's what a lot of people have always said because there is two distinct movies in the Craig era that people kind of take sides at what they say. All right, this is the return to Bond, and I think at the time for masses, and I think this is good, we'll get into eventually, like what we're talking about about the movies versus the books. But to the masses, I think a lot of people saw Casino Royale as this uh, stripped down, gritty reimagining. Yeah. Uh, of the character and that skyfall was the all right now we're going back to like what we love about bond with like the gadgets and the set pieces and the big crazy villains whereas there was the contingent of people who were more familiar with the books who said well no casino royale is actually yeah and the it's back like i said like casino version. royale is very much like a straight adaptation of that book right um again again basically all the casino royale stuff is a lot of it's like actually fleming's own words uh, it just maybe kind of slightly rephrased for like a more modern audience. Right. But basically, mm-hmm. like his his work and his words are there. Um, and I would say the second closest is from Arthur with Love, just from terms of plotting. I'm sorry, I'm just reading that within. I gotta say this too now. Within, um, so again in the second to last chapter of uh, You Only Live Twice, mm-hmm. there's the obituary right. that that M writes, and within the obituary, M criticizes the bond books for being <laughs> wait yeah no no what are this? yeah 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 so this is from the obituary chapter of you only live twice uh and this is uh if the quality of these books or their degree of ver- uh, veracity excuse me uh had been any higher the author would certainly have been prosecuted under the official secrets act it is a measure of disdain in which these fictions are held at the ministry that action has not yet, I emphasize the qualification, has been against the author and the publisher of these high-flown and romanticized caricatures of episodes in the career of an extent outstanding public servant. <laughs> That's funny. So well, he, 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 He's having fun. No, yeah, he, he's definitely having fun with himself, and yeah. I, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so with the history of the books... Yeah. What do you think is like the biggest thing that separates the books from the films? I think um, there's a couple things, um, and I wanted to actually read another quote from Fleming. Um, yeah, yeah. If I can find. And it. obviously, with the exception of clearly some of the more surface level things, like oh, not as One many gadgets and stuff. One of the things I like thought that. was very interesting. I think like the main difference is the way that Bond's presented. And the way that Fleming presents Bond, obviously there are differences in in kind of appearance and sort of attitude things, especially coming from the era. You know, it's, a lot of those books were written a decade before the movie, so there are just certain things of that nature. But Fleming, I don't think saw Bond as necessarily a good or bad guy because he says it himself in this quote, which I will say. Uh, he he um, he was uh, responding to a viewer's criticism that Bond was a villainous character. Uh, and Fleming said in a 1964 Playboy interview, I don't think he is necessarily a good guy or a bad guy. Who is? He's got his vices and very uh, perceptible, few, few perceptible virtues except patriotism and courage, which are probably not virtues anyway. But I didn't intend for him to be a particularly likable person. Mm-hmm. And I think that Fleming kind of, I think like the Bond films, they go immediately for the big, you know, the big blockbuster. I mean, again, these are films that are inventing kind of the big blockbuster and Bond's kind of heroic figure and he's like punching, you know, it's just like there's a more heroic and dramatic element to how Bond is presented in those movies. He's kind of presented more as kind of a higher figure in that regard. Right. Whereas I think Fleming was taking a lot 
of his own personal life and his own personal demons within the Bond character and kind of making it a lot more grounded and mm. a lot more of a exploration of this, which kind of it was one of those things where it kind of turned into an exploration of this man who was kind of, you know, run through the system and but still had that kind of sense of duty, mm-hmm. even if he didn't always go about it the right way. Well, but I think that's a major uh, discrepancy yeah. between the two because it's like yeah. – the bond, the movie Bond is clearly from the get go designed as like coolest, most important guy in the room. Yes, like it's it's definitely oh from like, his introduction it, scene in because in Doctor yeah. No, absolutely, a, a, he's literally that would be the defining aspects yeah. of the movie character. Yeah, where it doesn't seem to be that, and and you would almost be forgiven by thinking like that's what Fleming would do in the works is because you know he's very like clearly. There is a little bit of power fantasy involved in this, but it's almost like he's self-inserting in a way, but doing his due diligence as yeah. a writer to create like this character and his. He's more so like the insert nature of like him going on adventures is enough, but he doesn't seem like he's like uh, propping him up as like right. like oh like, like a god essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's funny so that's that, like because also interesting. That's, I feel like that's a really another thing that happens with Craig in that first. Casino Royale film because it's so close to Fleming because what's Craig in that movie if not a bit of a dick you know and but not you know a little bit more kind of in that realm of like sure like like it's still they still kind of put him in the traditional Bond film like heroic and, and bigger well, thing but, but that's the thing it's like I think at that point and you know the movies have such an identity is that even that film and it's interesting to see but that film also still has the um, like there's a bit of a roguish nature to Bond in that film, but it's still the language of the movie still centers him as like being the coolest guy. Yeah, I but agree. but it, but it also shows him probably being the most like pathetically fallible in, mm-hmm. in of like I think all the Bond movies because yeah. even in all the Bond movies when he fails it's like oh it's like fun like he's going on adventure and Casino Royale is like the one like you know the bit where. Uh, he needs more money because he failed at right, like yeah. winning it, and then he's like, he's like grabbing Vesper. He's like, he's like, this, this, this isn't a game, and then it's like, well, it is a game. It's poker. It's a, yeah. it's a, or it's cards. But um, but that movie does take the steps to show him as as extremely fallible to like, oh, this guy isn't the coolest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple other like, I have I found a lot of good quotes. Uh, another Fleming quote basically. Where he's uh, Bond was a product of his time. Where Fleming said James Bond is a healthy, violent, non-cerebral man in his mid-thirties and a creature of his era. I wouldn't say he's particularly typical of our times, but he's certainly of our times. So I think that Fleming kind mm. of said again, Fleming reflecting on kind of the war Britain that he was a part of, and now this post-war Britain and how kind of that way. Yeah, how war? Have, because obviously we've talked a lot about how the bond books have had those shades of like you know the like um different like there's some world just different wars going on like so there was like obviously like oh like the time when he was like fighting russians and you know and uh well because i think because like for i this is kind of a mess of a way of saying it but eventually we get to like golden golden eye yeah uh which definitely like looks back and does that whole like kind of meta commentary on like oh you're not fighting in the cold war anymore right. Bond. whereas like so like how heavily were the books influenced by that uh, definitely a lot by obviously fleming's work in world war ii but it's also because that was the big thing you know 50 
the war had ended, you know, war ends, what, 47 or whatever mm, right, it is, right, it right. officially ends, and he writes that first book in 53, but there's still that effect of, like, what the World War was. And, like, also, this is, like, the 50s, early 50s is that first kind of inkling of what the Cold War would become. It's, like, the height of the Cold War would eventually come up into the 60s with the, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis and and kind of the real kind of nuclear arms race that, that Russia and America were kind of putting themselves against. But this was, like, you know, remember, like, within the war, within World War II, Russia was our allies. And so the, the 50s where we were seeing Russia becoming kind of more something that we had to keep an eye on you know, mm-hmm. is stuff that kind of Fleming reflects in his book where, you know, where he starts Bond starts fighting the Russians and starts fighting Smirsch and very much like kind of the that rise and that kind of shift in who our enemies were is definitely very prevalent in those books as well as, and again, Fleming doesn't get into it in the early books as much as he does the later books, but, you know, Bond was a naval commander in World War II. And, right. And there's a lot of stuff that, a lot of connection. And the reason that he... How be- often does that come up in the books? Well, again, it's also like the the reason that he becomes a 007 agent is because, like, he wants to continue fighting. Mm-hmm. Like, he basically, like, the war's over. There's no need for, like, you know, to be active duty because, in, in, again, in theory, like, we don't want to fight any more wars. Right. But basically, like, he's, he's, he's again, just like Fleming... Where Fleming was kind of, you know, gunning for not necessarily really going back to it, but like using the Bond books as like, I want to get back into this. It's basically Bond's character was post-war when when there's basically just an uncertainty of what the future holds. His go-to is like, I want to be part of the Secret Service and I want to, you know, get that. And I think that's something that kind of, you know, hangs heavy throughout most of those books, but especially towards the end when Bond is kind of questioning where his allegiances lie and where does you know where does he fall with his relationship with m and with mi6 mm-hmm. and i do think that there's a lot of reflections on that element of of kind of the would bond. you would you say that the the movie or sorry the books are more post-war stories whereas the movies are somewhat more cold war yes, stories i would say so um, mostly because again, just the way that the cold war, it's like, again, you, you kind of see over the course of the books as he's writing those first ones into the kind of the later ones, even the stuff like specter being kind of more of an allegory for what the cold war was, right, which is kind right. of this big, like, you know, organization that's just going to cause like, you know, mass destruction, which is what the cold war was. It was like, you know, mutually assured destruction that one, you know. Basically, what kind of specter? There was always the threat of like you know a a, a secret villain yeah. blowing everything right. up, right? Because because yeah. because there was basically like we had the two parties of mutually assured destruction, where it's like when one's not going to attack the other because if one attacks the other, then everybody blows up. But then there was always like the idea of like well, what the third party, the the wrench and and everything, what what could really blow up the Cold War, and then Spectre kind of becomes that. And I do think there's, like, elements of it, too, where it's, like, again, in the books, Scaramanga being a Cuban assassin that works with the KGB and, and works with, you know, drug right. running mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which is very much very different than what becomes in the movies. Because, again, even though the movies do have elements of the Cold War, remember, Cubby and Harry are very much like, we don't want to make this political really at all. We want to kind of kind of right. keep it away from that. Right. And I think that, like, Fleming was a lot more interested in that because he lived in that world for so long. He lived during the war. He fought in the war. He was successful in what he did during the war, and now he was living in a post-war world. And this well, was his kind of way of, of coping with his feelings on that. Well, that's the thing. It's, like, the most fascinating thing to hear is that, that the books ultimately come around to telling this story of this guy who was in war, and then with when there is no war, like, you know, 
it almost kind of leads to a story of like then what is his purpose yeah. after that right um so that is like the most fascinating thing so like i think on average like so would you say it's safe to say that the books are doing way more character yes. work with the char- with yes. bond as a character more so than the movies really yeah. have and i think but i think there's also like i don't think it's the movie's lack of trying because i almost feel that the movies were kind of screwed over in the ways that which they did this because mm. The movies made a couple of decisions. They made the dis- a couple of decisions that would affect, or like decisions that were in Broccoli and, and Saltzman's hands and decisions that were out of their hands. One decision that is in their hands that I think very much affected the tone of the movies in comparison to the book is choosing Dr. No as the first movie. Because mm. remember, Dr. No was chosen because basically it was like a one location movie that it would just take place in Jamaica, very simple, you know, action. You know, they, were, they only had like a million dollar budget, so right. they couldn't really blow it. But like again, you're you're starting with a movie with a guy who has claw hands, you know. Oh sure, like the and, entire approach to it is completely different. Whereas like if you st- and obviously they don't have the rights to Casino Royale. Whereas like if you start with Casino Royale, that stuff things might be different. Right. The yeah. other thing that really screws them over is I do th- like their continual delay of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, kind of running into Connery leaving and then Lassie B leaving right after it. Because that's really like where that movie, like that whole thing was like, because they also insert Spectre as like this thing right away. Because mm-hmm. obviously, like, Spectre isn't involved in the original Doctor No book. That's something they take. Right. That right. they kind of want, okay, we're going to build up to this major villain and our big thing is going to be Blofeld. And, um, you know, and there's other things where like the winter wasn't good enough for the original idea for Honor Magic Secret Service. So they jump right into You Only Live Twice. And obviously, they don't take the end of that movie. But basically, they get into like what was in the books the confrontation with Blofeld, right. as opposed to like having the setup to it. And then, you know, they don't like. I think there's a definitely a history and an alternate history where they do do the proper Honor Majesty Secret Service right. and they get the proper follow up. Well, and I think there's probably a little bit more characterization. But the fact that like the way, it's just like them switching actors really just set this precedent of like well now every bond story has to kind of be its own thing because we never know when the next there's also there's also the and then we mentioned this in the villain episode is that the films clearly went started right off the bat with not having any sort of uh coherent um, poli- political identity in terms of the world in which it's taking place in. Yeah. Uh, other than the broad things about like, oh, these are the good guys and these are the, the right. Good and like bad a guys. little bit like like you know like the it, like especially like a great example of that is in From Russia with Love where the Russians within the book are very much you know the, the main villains. Right. It's like because of the non politicalizing of it. They're kind of more a background element of like they're basically trying to prevent you know. It's just different when your book series starts out as like. It's after World War II. This is an army man, and now he's in the intelligence, uh, like yeah. game and spy game. Whereas your first movie, your first movie is here's the most interesting spy in the world, and he's going to go face a supervillain. Yes. So it, it's definitely you're setting the stage completely differently. Yeah. That it, it makes it, yeah. It very much is like those early decisions, and I think by the time you get to like diamonds are forever and live and let die when you transition to more you're just kind of committing to like what that's this. so it's so interesting to hear that like in the source material because we talked about that in the villain episode about how these movies are kind of like very um just very broad politically and don't really focus on that aspect of the character as much where you find out in the source material it it's kind of almost becoming a very vital part mm-hmm. of a character it well more so the military aspect of it because it kind of seemed to inform 
where the character event like goes um, as a character yeah. uh, throughout. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think there's also the element of like I I've, we mentioned this a lot, but like more more so than Connery or any of the other Bonds, more took to the heart that uh, in, that the Bond book character wasn't necessarily like a killer. Oh, um, uh, okay. Um, like here's another. Uh, here's here's a direct quote um, from Gold finger the first chapter right mm-hmm. which is bond's view on killing mm-hmm. uh again more fleming prose uh it was part of his profession to kill people he had never liked it doing it and when he had to kill he did it as well as he knew how and forgot about it as a secret agent who held the rare double prefix the license to kill in the secret service it was his duty to be as cool about death as a surgeon if it happened it happened regret was unprofessional worse it was a death watch beetle in the soul Right. So basically, it's like kind of that element, and I think that's what like, you know, because again, those those Connery films are not really shy about like he's the super spy and he's like you know killing people that he needs to kill and like he's not afraid to be a roughhouse. Sure. With like the men and the women, like he's not afraid of that thing. Whereas like, obviously, they try to kind of put that in more, but more was very much like pushing this. Here's this thing from Goldfinger, where it's like he's like you know that's the way more plays it, and it's just. I think what's also interesting, too, is the way that the films compare. Because at the end of the day, what happens with the films is you we've had these five, you know, different bonds. Right, right. There are these, you know, these five different bonds who all have their own interpretations. Six if you count Peter Sellers, if you want to do that. Um, but it's like, you know, and each one, like, Connery's bond and Moore's bond and Dalton's bond and Craig's bond are all different bonds. They're all taking different elements of stuff that's present in the Fleming books. Yeah. For sure. And like the stuff that those writers are emphasizing where it's like, what, what is like fl- all those works? And obviously there, there's, you know, there's bond continuation novels and other things that happen within, you know, post Fleming's death, like in the seventies and the eighties where they, you know, the Fleming estate, like, you know, hires authors to be the new bond author, but within Fleming's work, you know, it's all Fleming on the page, whether, you know, he's kind of doing different things or exploring it from the, you know, a woman's perspective or, you know, getting amnesia. It's all, you know, a consistent character. And it's just like, I think that that's really kind of where, you know, the films just like the happenstance that they, you know, had to switch actors Right, you know, right. It's just kind of that does inform a lot of how those movies play Bond and like how Bond is presented in each one of those films. That last bit you were saying about the license to kill also does remind me about my biggest criticism about the Craig movies, especially Casino Royale, kind of having its cake and eating it too. Because it, it's clear that it seems like the whole thing about the license to kill, it's like you are given this because we are giving you permission to kill like it's not like it's not like an organization that just sends out a bunch of assassins like you have the clearance to do this if you want so there is a level of kind of interesting importance to it yeah and casino royale kind of does it but then it kind of gets away with that because you know it's it's that fine balance because it is interesting to hear that like all right this is it's not necessarily a privilege but it's like um you know you're you get a pass on this uh because of like your rank or whatever your skills or whatever um but then you don't want to get too much into because it just gets tedious where every time bond kills somebody it's like i feel every death in my hand like it's like okay all right we get it like you don't need to go that far with it but it is interesting to hear what what out of out of all the bonds you said that everybody kind of has like a little bit of like the fleming bond What, what what would you say in your personal opinion is the most like his 
not is the novel bonds i th- uh th- those the craig in those first two movies mm-hmm. i think is the absolute closest we've gotten got it to uh to the fleming bond i mm-hmm. think um just because again like a lot of that stuff like again the casino royale stuff is just it's directly taken from the book it's it's the fleming version on that page it's the bond that's a little bit you know dickish not afraid to speak his mind right you know kind of doesn't take things seriously in some senses of the word a little bit, you know, more down the earth of Dreyer. And I think it helps, especially that Casino Royale is very much that same kind of first down the earth book and down the earth movie yeah. where it's like, you know, obviously it does retain some of those classic Bond elements from the films, but like especially that casino stuff into kind of the Vest Berlin stuff before the big, you know, the big ending um, is very much like kind of what Fleming presented on the page. Got it. I Got do it. think that, I, I do think that there are different aspects of every Bond, you know, that, does appear though i do think like you know more especially once he kind of gets away from them trying to do the connery bond so like you know that kind of that middle trilogy of more that i really like the you know spy you love me moonraker uh for your eyes only especially like kind of the for your eyes only bond is very much like a you know kind of the older Fleming bond where, you know, he is kind of reflecting on like he is licensed to kill and he's trying to prevent Molina from, you know, making those same mistakes of just like the revenge is not going to get you out of this. I do think there's like a lot of interpretation there. And I do think like stuff like his discussion with triple X in, um, uh, uh, spy love me where he's like, you know, it's hard to, you know, I did kill him, but you know, it's hard right, to really right. make a decision with a, you know, when you're being chased, you know, 70 miles an hour skis, like that's kind of a Fleming S thing too, where it's just like the bond that's like, you know, he doesn't want to kill, but he's unapologetic about it. You know, there's, there's kind of like, I, I did do it, but that's my job. You know, and I think there's very much that. Whereas I think like, I do think there's also a lot of elements of the Fleming bond within the Dalton films. Um, because Dalton is such a big fan of the Fleming works. I do think he tries to channel that in, in different ways. Um, because again, those two movies license are uh, licensed to kill living daylights are very different, but like, you know, I, I, I do think that, that Dalton kind of takes a little bit more of that, that edge that the bond, bo- the book bond has mm-hmm. a little bit more of that darkness, um, that especially more doesn't really have, uh, and kind of Connery kind of went between in those movies. I think there's that kind of little, cause because the book Bond, as much as like we've talked about sort of him being a regular dude, it, it, Fleming, again, has admitted that there is kind of a dark edge to the guy, that, the, that you have to have that kind of darkness within you to, to be a 007 agent because you're going off on these missions and, you know, again, using your license to kill. To, to kill. Mm-hmm. And I do think like stuff like, you know, uh, because, again, like the, the Living Daylights, the whole stuff with, you know, him not shooting the assassin and like stuff my orders is very just directly lifted from the living daylight short story and i do think that there's that kind of element of like stuff like um in the live in um the living daylights when bond's like being really rough with pushkin mm-hmm. uh when he's you know throwing the his like mistress around and he's like you know about to shoot him and then but but then he says like if i if i if i didn't trust you you would be dead already right but that's very much like a fleming bond thing where it's like a bond that's not afraid to kind of like be physical and speak his mind and and get out there but also is making the smart decision right because he's right. a smart guy so cool. I, I do think like i'd probably go with those early craigs and kind of like those dalton movies being the cl- absolute closest but each bond uh whether or not they knew it or not is definitely like i mean because more definitely paid attention to the books i think like connery and brosnan definitely make it their own thing mm-hmm. um 
And Lazenby's Lazenby. Yeah. <laughs> um, as much as I think he's definitely like you know should get some appreciation for what oh he sure does yeah in yeah that role. he's 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 Lazenby, but like like Connery and 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 Brosnan I think take a little bit more like they just make it their own, but there's still elements of that that book bond that just appear within those characters. So here's kind of like now if we're if if I think that wraps up some of the other stuff. So up. I so here's my last big thing that I I want to wrap up on. So, as I mentioned up at the top of the episode, that your this franchise has the unique thing of having source material on like the Godzilla franchise, um, unless you know the Godzilla franchise, the source material uh, is an atomic bomb. Uh, also, World but, War II. yeah, 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 sure. But um, but here we have you. Are, we are in a unique situation where not only is there source material, but it's source material that while many people would acknowledge and appreciate exists. Culturally speaking, the adaptation of said source material, I would say, has completely supplanted uh, the uh, the books w- when it comes to the overall zeitgeist of yeah. the character. Well, because, character. like, like when you think about other kind of the major adaptations that we've had, or major f- series of books that have been adapted into movies, yeah. like I've taught, like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, and or like Marvel, for mm-hmm. example, it's another great example of this, where it's like. You know, the movies have gotten really big and definitely in some ways, you know, bigger just because like you have more tangibleness of like, you know, the money and you know, the you know, the characters right. on the screen. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, Marvel comics and the Harry Potter books and Lord of the Rings book, there's almost like an equal standing where it's like they're sure, they yeah. are like they're still like the Lord of the Rings books are like as highly regarded as the movies. They kind of stand as equals, like different things, but like kind of on the same thing. Especially like Harry Potter and Marvel are great examples of this, where it's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is this lauded, very successful film franchise, but it's not like the Marvel comics are slacking or anything. Right. And like the the Harry Potter movies and the J.K. Rowling books, there's like a fervent like fan base for both of those. But the thing about Bond is that you're absolutely right, is that Yes, people acknowledge that the source material exists, and it's not to say that those books aren't successful because they did sell at their time, and they continue to sell just kind of based on the name itself. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a pop culture perspective, if you if you say James Bond, people are immediately saying, oh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore, and who's your favorite Bond? And, right, yeah. And like, oh, like the big crazy action, and... And all the music and and the the move you know the opening like they're thinking of everything movie wise where it's like the books have kind of been more relegated to like a trivia question where it's like oh did you know that the the bonds actually started as a book series right yeah uh, and I think or it's, like or it's like oh did you know like this movie actually like Casino Royale is actually the first book in the I do uh, think yeah. like a really easy explanation for that is because. Those other series that I've talked about, maybe Marvel notwithstanding, but Potter and Lord of the Rings. No, but but the Marvel example is still good because the reason it still fits in with those other examples you've given because there is an acknowledgement that this is based off of source yeah. material and nobody – and you can – do people – is the source material, especially in the Marvel comics, is it as prevalent now? I think probably now it's more so about the movies. But everybody will still equally go to like, oh, like Amazing Fantasy, like the original appearance of Spider Man, like they, right. or, or it's like people will still call out like stuff like Chris Claremont's X Men run, yeah, the exactly, original, like St- like you know Ditko and, and like Stanley oh this Spider-Man. is this is very Walt Simonson and this yeah. Thor thing. Well, yeah. I think, but I think what happens with Bond is because like like especially like with Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter there. Was a f- there's a finite story to tell there. Sure, you adapt those seven Harry Potter books. You adapt, you know, the three Lord of the Rings books and the one Hobbit book that they made three movies. 
Um, you adapt those, and that's basically your material. Now, like, you know, they're doing other stuff with them, but people know that's the material. Whereas the thing about the Bond books is that, like, yes, like, they obviously, like, adapted a, a lot of those titles, at least, if not a lot of those stories to the screen. But the Bond the Bond has evolved beyond the books. And, right. And they were one of the first franchises to really be evolve that, where it's like you have now, we've been having original Bond stories for er- years. And even... You know, those original, those other stories, like, again, like, a lot of those stories originally, like, you know, are kind of related to the Fleming book in title only, like Spy Who Loved Me. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, like, especially the short stories expand upon them, where it's like, okay, well, we can't make a whole movie out of just this, this scene from a short story. We have to expand upon them. And I think there's this elements of, like, the Bond franchise seems like it's going to go on forever. You know, whereas, you know, Fleming died before he could really f- finish his true story of, of, of James Bond as mm-hmm. given to him by James Bond. Well, but I do think there's an element of like the Bond movies got so big and then they became their own thing. Right. That they, they became this the Eon production and it's Cubby Broccoli's baby and they basically kind of evolved past what Fleming had put on the page. Well, it, it's funny because we say it evolved past its own thing, but it evolved so much that it almost has become like the definitive work like yeah. if, if we're talking culturally yeah, because absolutely, it's like absolutely. because if anything it, it's this weird thing and it, it's more in the vein of a Jurassic Park or a Jaws in which these are things where the movies of those examples yeah. that is culturally now the work yeah like and I get it. Like those books came first, and people go. But you're right. But even people, with people those, people always forget that Jaws was a book first because they associate the Spielberg movies so but that, much. But that's what I mean. So it, it's almost like I'm just talking about how fascinating it is for a work to really supplant like the like the original the original work right. because because you're just, right because there is a level of people will equally acknowledge that the Lord of the Rings movies were books yeah. as well and you will have just even though if it may not be like your average person on the street there's a lot of people who will equally be like it was also this way in the in the books too like you're right it's it's kind of like um it's kind of like in that regard um whereas just with bond it's almost like Every reference point, everything about Bond that everybody says, this is what Bond is, this is what he should be, these are all the points of Bond that you, you, and, and you can't go back either. Like, it's oh, always, no. so is, that's why it's so weird that when Casino Royale came out, everybody looked at that as, oh, this is them going gritty with the Bond movies. Yeah. But well, it's like, this is more of like what it was originally conceived as. Well, I think what's also really cool, what's kind of even more unique about that was because you mentioned Jaws. And like I would mention, like you know, people really would never know that Die Hard was originally based on a book that was. Yeah, no, that's a good example. And it was gonna be, you know, that was a book that was a sequel, you know, that was a sequel book to some Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or whatever it was. Um, but those are like what's really fascinating about those is like Jaws, you know, is like you know, it's it's a, it's just a book. It's one book that was adapted into the movie, and obviously, right. like there's other stuff that comes with that. Same thing with that Die Hard example. Whereas what's kind of unique about Bond is that it was this franchise of books. It was this series that of was books. thought out and had character yeah. stuff it had going character on. Character stuff, yeah. and it had this whole kind of thing, and you know, it was just like, and I think it's just it's a testament to, it is a testament to kind of like the kind of the the groundwork that Fleming laid, but it really is a testament to what Broccoli and Saltzman created and once they just once they got all those rights and produced it. And it's really a testament to Broccoli's vision of creating a franchise. Mm-hmm. That he had like he saw we have these 
you know, at that time, like 11, 12 books that we can use, um, or like probably, you know, we have these 11 books we can use. We have these bunch of these stories. We can keep making these movies as long as we have material to work with. But here's a, here's a thought exercise though. If the bond films followed the books more, would we be having a different conversation? Because I almost think the reason that the Bond movies, because it came, as we just mentioned in this episode, came right out the gate swinging as a completely different vision for yeah. it. Or at least a, a no, radical, radically different enough that it just automatically established itself as its own thing. Whereas if Casino Royale was the first one and then it, and then let's say they're still good and people still yeah. like them. I, but if it followed the books more, do you think people would, I guess... My idea is that it probably would have maintained a history more of like, oh, this is a series that adapted the book. So then yeah. people kind of like, uh, yeah, I do think there would, would be think two, of it that two way. consequences. Once again, like, again, if you kind of match them up with the books, I do think that there's a like, again, because the the Fleming books kind of build up to that bigness. Right. They eventually build up to, again, that transition period. And like from that, when you go from From Us With Love to Dr. No, there is a transition where those books start getting bigger. Whereas, like in the movies, it would you know they start out pretty big. They start out with Doctor No. They start out with this big story, this big supervillain. You know, again, it's a little bit lower key than what would come later, but it's still kind of a, a you know a bigger thing than what those books started with. I also think that one of the, again one of the kind of blessings for the films and kind of what makes it so unique in that realm is because of their kind of outer order nature of it. When Connery, that is a curveball that really defines yeah, that franchise. Well, because yeah. Really, what would happen if you did go in order under trying to create this book like series that like actually does follow the continuity of the books? You're screwed when Connery leaves. You're mm -hmm. absolutely screwed. There's no way you're doing a continuity based thing and then just putting another actor in there. Right. Yeah. Whereas, like, the thing was is like, yeah, uh, Connery leaving before they could do Honor, Majesty, Secret Service with Connery was a blow, but it wasn't the end of the world because they had already kind of done all these things out of order and they knew, you know, they already had done like Goldfinger, which was this movie that was a break between the Spectre storyline they were doing anyway. So there was this confidence like, well, we'll just put someone else in here and we'll, we'll do the movie we want to make. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's really where the Bond franchise become, became what it was. Right. When Connery leaves and they put Lazenby in there, when they make that decision, like no matter what, we're continuing this franchise. That's like, that's where those movies kind of, I think, it was just going to lead to those movies getting bigger as long as they were kept yeah. making them. Because no, I mean that that that's another it's another uh, conversation for another time about like how successful would the series have been if they had maintained actors or more traditionally recast yeah. where it just didn't happen so suddenly. Yeah, it is, but, it, um, it, it is interesting because I do I do have that, a that feeling that would be actually be an interesting like I could come up with a whole list of Bond what ifs. Yeah, uh, like just throughout the history of just like kind of what would have happened in certain situations. You like know. if Peggy Carter was James Bond. Yes. Yeah. No, but I do think that there may be a sense of if they more adapted the books and followed the books more than people would have thought about yes. them as like, oh, these are adaptations of the series of books. And You're 100% so, correct. But and, and you're it's right. It's like the yeah. Bond and Eon team and, you know, the Broccoli and Saltzman and Maybaum and, you know, like all the directors, Terrence Young. Because, like, we've talked about – I've talked about the directors, you know, within the individual episodes. But it, it also should be noted that, you know, it, it kind of is a testament to film, you know, as an authorship of its own. Right. Because, you know, there's three major Bond directors um, that, you know, it's like, you know, Terrence Young, 
Guy Hamilton, Lewis Gilbert, and then you eventually get into um, John Glenn at the end of it. And, you know, Young really it starts it off by emphasizing that coolness uh, in Dr. Known from Russia with Love. Guy Hamilton comes in and puts in the humor that everybody knows about, and the, the humor and kind of the gadgets and the silliness that we associate with Bond. And uh, Gilbert really creates a sense of scope when he does um, uh, You Only Live Twice with the big volcano set and the big camera movements and everything like that. And I think what that all leads to is like those directors alongside the writers, alongside Broccoli and Saltzman, are as much authors of this kind of Bond phenomenon as Fleming was originally. Because those three, those three mainline directors, you know, those directors that do more than one film are all adding their own element of Bond and emphasizing their own element of Fleming's Bond. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of get all that together, plus those original Fleming ideas and that kind of Fleming nature of this, his knowledge of the spy work and how that kind of does translate into the films, it just kind of creates like a whole new creature. Mm -hmm. And it does kind of really emphasize that, yes, you know, there is adaptation you know, and there is an element of that, but you know, the director and the writers and, and the producers, they all have authorship of their own within these films and they all create their own character. And it's also a testament of like, again, of like how to do adaptation. And that's a whole other discussion for maybe a whole other type of podcast, but adaptation, you got to take some liberties because if you do, if you do directly take everything from the book, it's just it's it's a book. A book's not going to work as a movie. You have to moviefy it. Even like I said, I've mentioned it multiple times in this episode. But that Casino Royale, yes, the second half of that movie with the casino stuff and the sheaf and all that stuff is very much the Fleming book. But the book starts there. The book right. starts at Casino Royale. He basically Bond gets the, he's double agent and he gets the mission. He goes to Casino Royale. And in, in a movie, you need a little bit you need a little more of that lead up. You need you, you can't just send him to a casino and have a movie right. at yeah, the yeah, casino. Yeah, yeah. So that whole movie is basically setting up like this investigation and and all that sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. so even, you know, that movie with like Barbara and um, you know, the team that did Casino Royale, they have their own authorship of what Craig's Bond is. And it's not that's not even including like how the actors interpret the material. There's a bunch of authorship that happens when you adapt a book to a movie. And it's hard to kind of say like who really is the author, and it's like really just a collaboration. It's it's a whole new ball game once you're doing it. Yeah, well said, Nick. Uh, that's that's a very, very very good w- very good way to close this out because you know this uh, uh, coming up for air because we got we're we're up from the deep dive. We've you know, dived this is really very deep, fun, and this definitely makes me want to do something I had been considering for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it'll be an official deep dive. It may be a bonus episode that's kind of more in the news realm. I think at some point before the end of this podcast, or at least before Bond 25 uh, comes out, I do want to actually read a full Ian Fleming Bond book, because I've read two of them. I've read Casino Royale, and I've read Dr. No. Um, but I would like to kind of figure out which one I'd like to read. I'd really like to read one and maybe do a little like kind of mini book report on just kind of my thoughts. Oh, I thought we were going to do like a a Bondzilla audio book where you and I just read the book. (laughs) I mean, I would not be opposed to that. Okay, you can read the book. I'll be that thing. Remember in the old like children's book read-alongs where I'll be like, turn the page. Oh, no, 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 it would be like, turn the page. Yeah, <laughs> that bit. Um, uh, but I, but but I yeah. do think that would be a little bit of fun if I just kind of actually took a book and did a little mini book report on it. 
And uh, definitely, I'm. Uh, I feel like this is maybe some of the most fascinating stuff I've learned personally. I think, I, I think the the com- I think pairing our Titty Titty Bang Bang episode with this has been some of the most fascinating stuff we've talked about. Yeah, and I I actually feel like these are two killer episodes. Yeah, and it, it's just for me because w- w- learning a little bit more about Fleming himself, and then always learning a little bit about the source material informs uh, very much, especially when it's in this unique standing that we just mentioned. Uh, it definitely informs a lot of the movies re- uh, that we've watched, and just this whole legacy of James Bond, which is why we do the podcast. Yeah. But anyway, thanks. One, one last fact, Will. Uh, I, you always fact. do this. You always, like, I, I close this out so well, and then you're like, oh, wait, I forgot something. No, no, no. Just, I, you know what you are for the podcast? You're me when I'm trying to leave for work in the morning, and I keep on forgetting my keys in the apartment, and I get all the way down to the house. Sorry, not the apartment, the studio, whatever. Anyway, what is it? What do you need? What do you need oh, to say? I was just going to mention that Bond is still a big drinker and smoker in the books, of course. And uh, in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he consumes 46 alcoholic beverages. Oh, there we go. But his uh, alcohol intake does not seem to affect his performance. <laughs> of course And not. he was also like one of those people that smokes like 70, 70 cigarettes a day. Okay. Is there anything else? No, is there any other addendums? Jesus. All right. Um, that was a good ending, though. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that is it for this uh, James Bond deep dive. As always, you can check out the other deep dives for both James Bond and Godzilla that we have done on this show. And then, as we mentioned several times, you can check out last week's episode in which we talk about one of Ian Fleming's other works that led to the family-friendly musical Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and uh, that will conclude this month's portion of James Bond information as we head into the, our second portion of, ja- of uh, James Zilla, I was going to say. But his name's not James Zilla. It's Godzilla. <laughs> uh, but uh, until then... Or you- God Bond? God Bond. No. Doesn't work as well. <laughs> uh, but uh, until then, you guys know where to find us. Nick has plugged several times in yeah. other episodes. And uh, so until next time, until the next deep dive, I'm Will. I'm Nick. And take care, everybody. Peace.